For the past few weeks, we were discussing the somewhat mysterious episode at the end of Parakeh, the appearance of the Sartzva Hashem, the captain of the Lord's host, parents to Yeshua, with the sword, his, and his conversation with him. We're going to move on now to Parakvav. We will begin Parakvav. That is the story of the conquest of Yericho and the miracle of Hashem making its walls sink into the ground. So, so Perik Vav, Pasuk Yud begins, Yericho sogeres v'mesugeres, v'penei b'nei Yisrael. Yericho was completely shut and locked up in the face of the b'nei Yisrael. Ein yotei ba, nobody could go out, nobody could come in. So Garrison was Sugaris. That's a what we call a double doubled word. We have that all over the Torah. What is what does the Torah mean when it does that? What what is the significance of doubling a word? Chazal themselves have a machlokas. The, the the Gemara brings a dispute about whether every time the Torah uses two words, are we supposed to make some drasha from the second word, or or, or do we just say dibra Torah kolashim adam? The Torah speaks the way people speak, and in Hebrew apparently that was a that was a common form of speech to say pakod yifkod. We say azov uh, tazovimo. We say yeah, there, 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 uh, there, there, are, there are many examples. The Marvin Bavmetzia brings numerous examples where the Torah uses a hashiv tashiv regarding a shavasaveda. Many examples of the Torah using a doubled word. So, what does sogeres and musugeres mean? Right. So, so Simcha is pointing out this is a this is a very important approach. Many of the Mefarshim B'derech Hapshat often say that when the Torah uses two words, it means to emphasize that it was really that way. It was it was extremely that way. It was uh, right, really shut down for emphasis. And we'll see that some interpret the pasuk this way as well. But a, no, a number of the Mefarshim explain they they, they actually following Chazal, I guess, that actually are Doresh. So Garrus and Musigaris to refer to different things. Rashi cites the Targum. The Targum Yonison here says that the Yericho, Achida Havas Pedashin de Parzala, it was barred with bars of iron. Parzala is like the Hebrew word barzel, iron. So it was barred with bars of iron. And also it was, uh, it was strengthened with. With also, Abrin is another word for bars, for, for bars, Abrin Dinachash, with copper bars. So, the, according to the Targum and Rashi, the, the Pasuk is telling you that it had multiple different kinds of defenses. It had iron and copper bars. I'm not sure what the point of having two different metals were. If one is stronger, just use that one. But I guess, I guess you can you know, think about security technology, why somehow there, was an advan- there, were, there were advantages, complementary advantages of both types of bars. So, Sigaris and Sigaris refers to two different materials, two different types of bars. That uh, in order to keep the Jews out, the Radak, the Radak says that that he says that Sogarism Sogaris refers to it was sealed against inco- incoming or outgoing traffic. He says that Sogaris means nobody could leave, nobody inside the city could go out. As we found about the spies back a few frakim ago, it says that they that that, that they had to leave before the doors were sealed, and then the, and then the, the king's the king's men had to rush out before they sealed the doors. The doors were sealed; nobody could go out. And also, Masugeres, nobody could come in. Uh, that's what it says. Ain't ain't but the end of the puzzle says no one can go out, no one can go in. According to the Radak's first chat, 
that, that, those are parallel phrases. So geres musu geres. No going out, no going in. Or the Radak says, or he says, the wait, what Simcha says, he says, oh, kefel so geres and musu geres. It just, it's just a double lush and without any specific significance. It just means that it was very strongly barred. Laravaskira, it was, it was excessively well sealed. And, and that, that's what the Targum means also. The, the Targum gives a kind of a concrete example of, of iron and copper, but in general, just, the Kefal just means, he says, that it was, it was uh, very tightly sealed shut. The, the Matudas David, a little bit differently, Matudas David says it had always, historically, it was always a, a city that had security, that had, that had Sogaris. It was always a city that was sealed shut. But now they increased the security. Now, because of the impending threat to the Bnei Israel. Now they increased the now they increased the security to make to make even more sure that nobody can get in or out. Why was it important that nobody can get out? I, I understand nobody can get in. That was to uh, that was to, that was that was to seal the city against attackers. But why was it important that nobody can get out? So the Matudas David says that the that that it, it, he well. He just says that 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 we, that, 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 that we, we don't want people to know even even I guess where the doors were where where the where, where the where the, the arteries of the city were we don't want anyone to know where the where the access points to the city are I'm not sure why they couldn't just look at the look at where the gates were there must have been gates they had to open the gates sometime but he says that the point was that it was it was meant to that the security measure was to make sure that people didn't know to to, to keep the information uh, uh, suppressed about how to get into the city. The others say a little bit differently. Others say that the concern was that we don't want anyone to that that, that we don't want that they don't want anyone to get out to to, 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 you know, to under a white flag to settle with the city to make peace to say you know, we we accept your sovereignty we, we we surrender to you. This is a common problem that that, that besieged cities that I want people getting out and, and and making a separate peace with the enemy. We find in the story of the Khurban and Masechus Gitin, Bavli and Gitin, it says that the Rabbanim wanted to surrender. They they, they felt they couldn't, that, that the Chachamim wanted to surrender to the Romans because they, they, they knew they couldn't stand up to Roman military might. But the Baryonim, the, the Zealots, the, those who were uh, uncompromising and uh, hyper-patriots and refused to agree with, the, refused to, to deal with the Romans, they, they, they controlled the gates of the city. They refused to let uh, the Chachamim out. They didn't want them to settle with the Romans. The Gemara has a very dramatic story how they smuggled Rilchim and Zakai out. He... Uh, he had himself smuggled out. He he played dead, and they and they put him in a coffin, and they they brought him out, and, and claiming he was dead, and they had to get him past the guards and so on. But this is a this is a common problem that besieged cities have that they don't want people making deals with uh, make surrendering and making deals with uh, with the attackers. So the seals, so, so some say might have been their old bag or the Barbanel. So some say that that the city was sealed to prevent them to to prevent to prevent any of it to, to prevent any of the any of the inhabitants. From, from uh, any of the inhabitants from from surrendering to the from surrendering to the to the the that the, the, the Barbanel says this is the shot of the Barbanel he says that sealing it in both directions was to ensure the safety of the city nobody can go out in order to make peace with the Jews and say that you know, we'll, the, we'll, we'll accept a, uh, a vast vassalage we'll agree to uh, surrender to you and pay you taxes nobody could come in so that they couldn't force their way into the city so we have these different explanations of Sogaris and Sogaris the, the city was the city was sealed the city was, was the city was sealed tight it was, it was sealed shut against the Jews the 
In, in, right, so in, in the case of the Jews, where, where the Jews can, where, where, where the Jews were arguing about whether to whether to surrender to the Romans or to fight and to defy them, right? So presumably, the the, the concern of the Chachamim was that. Like we said, that, that that there is a time to fight, but there's also a time to surrender because at some point you're just throwing away, throwing away Jewish blood. And they, that we're not we're not pacifists, but on the other hand, uh, there is a time where where the resistance is futile and uh, and fighting is just uh, is just a pointless a pointless waste of waste of lives. And presumably that presumably that was the. Uh, presumably, that was the concern of the Chachamim. That at this point, they, they said you know, the Jews certainly fought against the enemy at the time of the Tashmanaim. Even earlier, maybe in the time of the Romans, that there, there was still there was still some attempt to fight. But at this point, presumably, that that was the that was the concern of the Chachamim that that there was no point in fighting. We find even in our generation, this is sometimes an issue. In the eighties, uh, still still relevant now, I suppose. But in the eighties, so there, there were discussions about land for peace, about giving in, in Israel, giving back some land to the Arabs in exchange for better relations. So there are obviously many different positions across the Israeli political spectrum, and within the within the, the religious community, there were also differences of opinion. There, 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 there were those who believed more ideologically that Jewish possession of Eretz Israel is a great mitzvah. And it's worth it's worth risking war for, and it's worth worth risking Jewish lives for, because that that, that it's, it's an important value to control as much of Israel as we can. It's a religious value. There were others who took the more pragmatic position that Jewish lives are very precious, and uh, even though it's even though it's good to have Eretz Israel, but it's it, it's not not at the cost of the not at the cost of Jewish lives. And there were those who took a very extreme version of that position, and they said even even a single Jewish life, that pikoch uh, nefesh, like you said, it's a paramount Jewish value, and even if it means uh, a single Jewish life will be lost, it's, it's not worth holding on to territory. Others disagreed, and others said that, that when, it comes to, when it comes to questions of national policy, the, the government, the king, the government, is not bound to, to, to make the same kind of calculations that a private citizen would about saving every single Jewish life at a matter of the cost. We find, for example, that kings engage in wars, and not all those wars were, were wars of uh, defense or necessity. There, there were wars of choice as well. The, 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 the Gemara, the Rambam, talk about Belchemes Rishus, which is literally, literally means a war of discretion, a war of choice, for economic reasons or other reasons. Halacha considers that legitimate. Halacha considers, un- under certain circumstances, even a somewhat discretionary war is legitimate, despite the fact that some people will die. And therefore, if it serves the national interest, it sounds very cold and callous. But uh, but, but 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 there is this doctrine that, that that the king, the government, has to make decisions that are in the best interest of the overall of the overall national interest, and we and we don't we don't necessarily make our entire foreign policy subservient to the single important but but narrow goal of, of, of preserving each and every Jewish life. So. Right. So then, of course, is the practical question: Will making an agreement actually save lives? Obviously, one of the arguments in the case of land for peace, one of the arguments of the of the political right, obviously, was it's not even going to work. They said you can't trust them, and they'll just use the land as a staging ground for further attacks. Obviously, that that's a practical that's a practical question as well. That, that, that that's a practical question as well. And of course, that, that has to be taken into account as well. And again, the, 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 as I often discuss with my father, the, 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 there are different attitudes among the among the chachamim as to how to approach these questions. So some of them approach them more on the basis of ideology, that land, control, sovereignty. 
and some approach it on a much more pragmatic basis that let's decide what we think is more likely in an objective and neutral way without uh, dogma and ideology which way is more likely to save Jewish lives. This is actually there's an issue that, that's, that's, that's relevant now. I, I've, been, I've been writing about the Israel's right-wing government is trying to pass a law uh, imposing the, the death penalty for Arab terrorists. And the Haredi parties are actually ambivalent. They're not sure if they're going to support the law. At least they haven't come out with a clear position yet. So why are they opposed to it? So there are two reasons, apparently. One reason is pragmatic, that, that unlike, some of the, unlike some on the political right, the, the Haredi parties, when it comes to security, are less ideological. They, they, they defer more to the professional security experts insofar as the Shin Bet or other security forces say, we don't think this is a wise idea, we think it'll inflame the Arabs even more. The Arabs have, a, a, lot, a lot of them have a death cult and a death wish anyway. Martyrdom is, uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a major value in that society. So death penalty may not deter anybody. It might just make martyrs of those who are executed and inspire more terrorism. Others have suggested that if, if there's a terrorist sitting on death row, that, that may inspire more terrorists uh, to, to, to kidnap people to, to use as bargaining chips. Anyway, the security forces apparently, obviously the security forces are, are, are not immune from political, political bias and political uh, decision-making as well, but the Haredi parties don't have such a rigorous ideology, and, and that, like you said, they're, they're, they're looking at this from the perspective of Pikuach Nefesh, which is the policy choice that will maximize, again, we're humans, we don't know the future, but which is the policy choice that will maximize to the best of our knowledge and understanding the, the preservation of Jewish life. So, 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 they're, so, so, they're, so they don't have an ideological commitment. They're trying to figure out what the best solution for the, for the preservation of Jewish life is. The other argument they're making in this case is that, is that this law may be applied to Jews at some point, even if they're currently crafting it to apply to Arabs. The court or other political forces may somehow extend the law to Jews. And then, and then, and then we'd, be, we'd be responsible for a law that's going to result in the, in the execution of Jews, which is a terrible thing. And this is what I'm actually writing about, whether it's really so, whether Halakha does or does not condone the possibility of a sovereign government, Jews or non-Jews, but a sovereign government that's not according to the Torah, whether, they, whether we condone the idea that they can execute Jews in the course of their, in the course of their uh, application of criminal justice, so that's, uh, that, 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 that's also an interesting question. But, but the, right, the bottom line is, obviously, Pikuach Nefesh, Sakonat Nefeshos, is a major Jewish value. It's not always the deciding value, but it, it, it's one of the most important values. And certainly, if, if we have to make decisions about a city, about surrendering and fighting, obviously, that's going to be one of the, one of the crucial questions we have to consider. So Yericho was Sogeris and was Sugeris. The, the, the Ralbag says that the, also that, that it was... Yeah, so we, we discussed various interpretations of Sugaris and Sugaris. Nobody can go in, nobody can go out. Pasuk Beis, Vayomer Hashem al Yoshua. So Hashem said to Yoshua, Re'ei nasati v'yadcha as Yericho v'as Malka. See that I have given into your hands Yericho, the, the city of Yericho, its men, its king. Yibore Achayel, even, even though they're mighty warriors, even though they're, they're, they're men of valor, they're, uh, they're, they're intimidating figures, Nevertheless, I, Hashem, I, I, I can do anything and, and see that, I, 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 as we're about to explain, I, I, I have given Yericho and its king, the, the Gibari HaChayel, the, the mighty warriors, into your hands, into your hands, uh, as, as, we're, as we're about to explain. The, the, it says Hashem spoke to Yoshua. So, so some of Hashem explained, the Ralbag and the Radak explained, 
This is really the part of the same story that at the end of Parakeh. It says there that the Malach, the Sartzav Hashem, appeared to Yeshua. We discussed that for the last few weeks. And there isn't, there isn't much of a communication there. It says that Yeshua asked him, are you with us or with the enemy? And he said, no, I'm a Sartzav Hashem. Take off your shoes. It's holy ground, consecrated ground. That was the end of the story. So there doesn't seem to have been much of a... He didn't really say much. He just gave his introduction, identified himself, and said, take off your shoes. So the, so the, the Raldag and the Radak understand that that was really the introduction of the story, and this is what the Malach said. This is what the Saratzav Hashem said to Yeshua, and he said to him what we just read, that, uh, that, that I'm going to give that in the name of Hashem. He said that I have given Yericha, when it's king, the Gibori HaChayel, into your hand, and uh, the next few Pesukim we're going to read about the preparations for the, for, the, for the demolition of the wall of Yericha. Even though here it says, Vayomer Hashem al Yoshua, it was Hashem who spoke to Yoshua, and previously it, it did not say Hashem, it did not say Hashem appeared to Yoshua, it says there was an Ish, and he said he was a Sartzva Hashem. So in the previous parak, it identified the apparition as a Sartzva Hashem, an Ish and a Sartzva Hashem. And here it says, Vayomer Hashem al Yoshua. Nevertheless, the, 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 the Ralbag and the Radak explain that it was, it was indeed the same entity. The, the, when, it, when Hashem spoke, it, said, it means Hashem spoke through through his emissary, through the, through the, through the, through this art, through this art of Hashem. The, the, the Radak says, this was the Malach, and he was called, B'Shem Hashem HaSholeach also. A Malach is called, on, on, is called, on, is called on, on the name of the, on the name of Hashem. This is the point the Rambam makes. The Rambam says that throughout the, that, that the Rambam says that throughout Tanakh, the Nevi'im, when they were prophets, when they received prophecy, they generally receive the prophecy through Malachim. Sometimes the Torah identifies that Malach Hashem said, and sometimes it just says, Hashem said, but it means, sometimes it's a shorthand, it means Hashem spoke through the Malach. So when, so, so when the Navi, when, when, when it says in Tanakh that Hashem spoke to someone, it often means through a Malach. It says, uh, the Radak brings, this is what happened at Gidon, story in Shoftim, it says that, it, it says that a Malach appeared to Gidon, and Hashem said, I will be with you. So it was the Malach who appeared, yet he said, I will be with you. It means Hashem said that. Because the Malach speaks in the name of Hashem. So he speaks I, and it's referred to as Hashem because, because, uh, because the Malach is just an agent of Hashem, emissary of Hashem, and that's why he can be referred to interchangeably as Hashem. I, the Malach says, when he refers to Hashem, is referred to as Hashem. He brings a Midrash, that Chazal say, that, uh, that, that uh, we had, I think, in, in, in yesterday's Pasha, it says, Kishmi Bikirbi, Hashem says about Kishmi Bikirbo, that, the Malach, that Hashem refers to the Malach that he would send with the Jewish people. He says, my name is with him. That Hashem, Hashem combines his name with every Malach, whatever that means. But the point is, a Malach being uh, an extension of Hashem's will, the Malach is sometimes referred to as Hashem. Anyway, that's the, that's the understanding of the Radak and the Ralbag, that this, speaking of Hashem to Yoshua, is, is a continuation of the same episode of last week's, of the, of the, of, of the previous parak, and then when the, when the Sarch of Hashem appeared to Yoshua, he gave him this message. Hashem was telling him that I have that I have given over Yericho and its king, into your hands. So in Perikvah Gimel, we begin with the instructions of how exactly they were going to capture Yericho. So the Hashem tells Yoshua, you shall surround the city, call on all the fighting men, you shall surround the city one time. This shall you do for six days. Seven Kohanim shall carry 
seven shofros. I think it means each Kohen carrying one shofar rather than each Kohen carrying seven shofros, but seven, seven Kohanim carrying seven shofros. The shofros were shofros Yovi Lim. It's an odd word. Yovi Lim is a strange word. Some of them, the Farshim explain that Yovel, Yovel, Yovi Lim means ram. Rashi says Yovi Lim, Elam. Uh, the Radak says Elam. And uh, I'll say in, in, in Arabia, in Arabia, that you heard they call Yichra, they call Ram, Yovla. The Targum also says the Praya, Ram. So the, most of the Farshim understand Yovi Lim is, is just an exotic word for Ram. So they carried Ram's horns, like the shofar that we use on Rosh Hashanah. However, the Barber now brings that shofar Yovi Lim means the shofar they used on Yovel. The Torah, the Torah, the Chumash describes the use of the shofar in a couple of places. One of them is, of course, Rosh Hashanah that we do today. The, the other is, that, is on Yovel. Yovel, the 50th year. Every, every seven years is a Shemitah. Every seven Shemitahs is a Yovel. The 50th year is Yovel. So on the 50th year, there was a mitzvah to blow the shofar. We don't do this with Manazet, but the, there was a mitzvah to blow the shofar on Yovel. So, according to the Barbernell, this was the shofar they used, the same shofar. I guess they had a dedicated shofar they used in Yovel. This was the shofar they used there, the shofar of Yovel. Either way, they carried shofaros. The Sneha Aron, the seven Kohanim carried the shofaros in, in front of the Aron. And Ubayomashvi, on the seventh day, you shall circle the city seven times. And the Kohanim shall blow their shofar. So Yom Hashvi, so Kachuto means the seventh day of this, of this procedure. They started on one day, they did this for six days, and the seventh day this. There is a Midrash that seventh day actually was Shabbat. If it began on Sunday, maybe we'll discuss that in a future occasion, the idea of fighting on Shabbat, whether, whether we do that or not. We have the choice. We don't have the choice, and we certainly do. We'll discuss that as well, maybe. But if you do have a choice, should you really fight on Shabbat? Okay, putting that aside, so the seventh day, either either simply the seventh day of the procedure or the seventh day, which was also Shabbos. So then, it, that, 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 on, on the seventh day, they had uh, kind of like circus. We have one hakafa every day, and we go seven times on Rosh Hashanah, which is basically the seventh day of circus. So we go uh, seven times then. And that Kohanim yitzhu bashopar. And the Kohanim blew their shofar. There, there is a question here as to whether the Kohanim blew their shofaros every day or only on the seventh day. So, Abarbanel, they say that the Kohanim, the, the, sorry, the Abarbanel, the David, they say that they, that they blew the shofaros every day. At first it tells you that they, 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 they circle the city once every day, seven times on the seventh day, and on all those times, the Kohanim is the shofaros, the shofaros, the last three words of the passage, the Kohanim shall blow the shofaros, that was true on every one of the seven days. The Ralbag, however, says differently. The Ralbag says that the shofaros were not blown the first days. He says that that, that, that Yeshua that Yeshua command Yeshua's command was that they should not blow the first six days. The that, that, this is going to be based on a punch later, punch Yud, where he, where he told the people he told the people Losteriu that uh, don't blow the shofar, don't make any noise until the day I tell you, which according to the Ralbag was means the means until it until it was the seventh day. But uh, others say no, they blew the shofar all seven days. According to the Ralbag, why did they not blow till the seventh day? Why was it important enough to be given an explicit instruction, do not blow the shofar until the seventh day? So he says because they were besieging an enemy city. 
if they would go about announcing and literally trumpeting their presence, we're here, he says, and the city would have attacked them. They would, they would have, even though they were, they were sealed up inside the city, they would have cast down stones and they would have attacked from, the, from behind the wall. So even though Hashem could have made an ace, he could have defended them. This whole story was about to be a tremendous ace, about the walls of the Yerushal being destroyed. But there are back to the famous principle that Hashem does not make Nisim gratuitously for no reason. So if you're an attacking force, you don't go around announcing your presence beyond what's necessary. You, you, you utilize stealth and discretion until the point at which you can't, until the point at which it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not applicable anymore. So here, on the first six days, they weren't doing anything. They were just preparing. They were not supposed to announce their presence. I don't know how far away they surrounded the city, whether they could be seen or not from inside the city. But anyway, they're, they're all back understand that they were definitely not supposed to blow the show for the first six days because they were not supposed to announce their presence. Because with Derek Hatev, an army doesn't go around uh, revealing itself until, until it needs to. This is similar to the discussion we had back in Perik Bay's where they sent the spies. So we mentioned that the, back, back in the spies of Moshe Rabbeinu as well, some, some of Hashem understand that sending the spies was wrong, that, that since Hashem was leading them to Derek Nate, they, they shouldn't have bothered with normal military preparations. They should have just trusted Hashem. Other commentaries explain that the other commentaries explain that the that no that the Hashem wants us to do things with Derek Hateva. We're supposed to act and we're supposed to conduct ourselves in a normal way, following the laws of nature, following uh, prudent, uh, prudent, following prudence. Even though Hashem is making easy for us, it's our job to act with Derek Hateva. So there's nothing wrong with sending spies. And here also the Rambam is saying there's nothing wrong with. Uh, that they were not supposed to announce themselves, and that just exposes them to pointless risk for the first six days. Anyway, so they had this procedure, they, 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 surrounded, they surrounded the city one hakafa for the first six days, the Sohanim and the Manam Kari Shofarot and the Aram. Bihaya, then in Pasuke it says, Bihaya, the Meshach the Karen Hayovel, when, when there was a long blast of the Karen Hayovel, of, of the torn, of the, of the Shofar, the, the long blast, the, 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 the Mepharshim say, Rashi says, Mishok means, Kiyach Rona, the Hirech HaTakeh called The last Kiyach, this is what we call it, Kiyach Yidola, the last Kiyach was made longer than the other one. The Radak also says, Mishok means, the Hirech HaTakeh, when it was made long, that uh, this, this was the custom, that, that the last, when you, when you had a series of shofar blowing, the last one would be longer to, to, to signify the end of the, the end of the sequence. And the Maril says, my real he says, this is our minute, he says, of blowing at Kia Gidola. He says that that's why the Kia Rona is blown long. He says, we call it Kia Gidola in order that people should know that, the, that this is the end of the sequence of shofar blowing, and they should say, Ashrayam Yodi Trua, the Tukum that we say after they blow the shofar. So, there are different customs actually when the Kia Gidola is blown. Some of the Makhdarim, maybe some Shuls, do it after each of the 30 sets, they blow at Kia Gidola. Other shuls, I think I've seen, only blow the Kia Gidola at the end of all hundred kolos, at the end of Musaf. But to the Maril, who's saying that we blow the Kia Gidola before Ashri Amir Deshruah, sounds like he's saying even after the first 30, that, that's when he said, at least for the Amir, that's when we say Ashri Amir Deshruah, we say it before Musaf, right after the first set, right after the Kia Miusha, right after the first set of 30 Kia. So, uh, Maril apparently says, over there you blow Kia Gidola to, to signify that the, a lot of people know this is the end of that first set, and they move on in the, in the services. He doesn't bring our Pasuk in Yeshua, but he brings the Pasuk, uh, which the Mepharshim bring here as well, he brings the Pasuk at Hartinai. It says that, uh, that the people were prohibited from, from entering the mountain, the Mount Sinai, at the time of Matan 
as says, at the end of the, the giving of the Torah, the Meshor Chayovel, the Shofar would blow a long blast that would signify that the end, the departure of the Shina. At that point, the, the restriction was lifted and, the, and they could walk upon the mountain. So again, the Maril says, you see the Meshor Chayovel, a special long blast of the Shofar, that signifies the, the end of some sequence, the end of some, of some duration. And there it meant that the Matan Torah was over, they could walk on the mountain, and we do it during the... We do it during the Shofar to signify that the Shofar blowing has now been concluded. Then we go on and we say the Sukkim that we say after blowing the Shofar. And here the Mepharshim say the Meshach, Karen, and Yovel, meaning that, the, that, that when, the, when, when the Kohanim blew a special long blast of the Shofar, people realized the Kohanim were now finished their role. What happened next was the Ariu Kalam, Shrua Gizola, the, the whole people, the whole nation would then blow a Shrua Gizola, a long Shrua, or it, this this Yeriu this, this is a question whether it means uh, with the shofar or, or whether it means that that, that they that they would uh, cry out. So the the that that the, 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 the who were finished with their that the Kohanim who were finished with their uh, with their shofar people people would give a true gedola and then the nafla the walls of the city fell down the Allahu and the people would enter the city, they'd be able to enter across the fallen wall. So the question is, here it mentions the Kolha Shofar, the, the, here it mentions the single Shofar. So, right, does that mean that all the Shofar, all the Shofar is blue as, blue as one, or it's, uh, or it's um, interesting question, and I do not know. Interesting question. So the people would enter, and every man would enter the... Matuda Sabbath here says, it says, Ish Negdo, each man would enter the wall where, where it had fallen. Matuda Sabbath says, Lo People wouldn't have to keep circling, because all the walls had fallen down. So if the people were all around the city, all the walls fell into the ground, so everyone could enter from wherever he was. The Radak disagrees. The Radak says that not all the walls fell down. He says, the Radak raises a question which a number of, a number of Mepharshim deal with. They say... Back in Perik Bay, when the spies met Rachav, Rachav Hazerna, and she, she sided with them, she saved them, and she asked for a favor that captured the MS, she said, please spare my family, me and my family. They said, yes, we'll do that, but the condition is you have to stay, you have to stay in your house and hang a red string from your, as a sign from your window, and uh, that will mark your house and we'll spare it from the annihilation of the city. Then it says that she lowered them out of the out of her window, outside the walls of the city, because her house was in the wall of the city. So the question was, if her house was in the wall, then what happened to her? She, she was in the and she stayed in the house and hung a red regiment on the wall, collapsing to the ground. What happened to her and her family? Where were they while the wall was collapsing? How did they see the red thread if the wall was collapsing? So we have several different approaches. The Radak I mentioned before, the Radak says. Old, that the Jews were approaching the repo from one direction, even though it says they, they made a circle around the city, but, uh, but in general, the Jewish camp, the Jewish army, was facing one side of the city. They, they weren't besieging the whole city. They, they were approaching from one particular direction. So, the Radak says, only that part of the wall fell. Only the part of the wall that faced the Jewish camp fell. The rest of the wall, the other side, stood, remained standing. And therefore, Rachel's house was one of the other sides of the city. The Rachel's house never fell. Only one section of the wall fell. The rest of the wall remains intact, and that's why Rachel's house remains intact as well. This is what Matuda Seven says. No, Matuda Seven says that the Matuda Seven says that the 
All the walls fell. That's why the Jews could enter from wherever they were. They didn't have to keep circling. But Judas David says that all the walls fell. So again, so if, if all the walls fell, what happened to Rachel's house? So, the Barbanel says, yes, Rachel's house fell along with everything else. When it says that they looked for the Chod Hashani, they looked for the red thread, that means before it fell, the, that the, the spies, they, they, before they toppled the walls, they, they looked out for the red thread and they marked the spot. They said, okay, her house is over there. Somehow, even though the wall fell and her house fell, I guess she wasn't, she didn't, I guess she, the walls just, they, they just took her like an elevator ride down to the ground and then the walls just disappeared and she was left standing on the ground. But they could see where that spot was, where the house was, so the, the army then approached that spot and they, and they saved the people who were on that spot who, who had been in the wall, at that point in the wall, even though there was no more wall. The, the Vilna Joan, who we mentioned back, in, back a while ago, the Vilna Joan has a, had another interpretation of this. The Vilna Joan says that he, he has a close reading of the Sukkim in Tarek Bays. It says that when it describes how she, how she rescued the spies, how she, how she spurted them out of the city through, her, through, the, through the window in her home, it says, She lowered them by a rope through the window. Because her, her house, her home, was in the wall. Was in the wall. And she lived in the wall. So it, uh, so it sounds like a repetitive phrasing there. So the building going says that she actually, her house had two components. There was, there was part of her house was just a regular building inside the wall, within the wall, on the edge of the, the, edge of the city, right, right, right up against the wall, but part of her house was a regular house next to the wall. And part of her home, part of her apartment, extended into the wall, and that uh, she lived actually in the wall. So he says that when the, when the wall fell, so it destroyed, the, the wall took with it the, that portion of her apartment that was actually in the wall, she also had a structure that was adjacent to the wall, that was right up to the wall. That part remained standing. That's why the, even though part of her home was destroyed, the part that was in the wall, she also had a home that was right outside the wall, and that part remained standing, and that's where they, that's where they rescued her from. So anyway, we have a variety of stuff in about exactly, exactly how this works with, with Russell's home, and how much of the wall actually fell. And uh, the circum then continues from Patrick Vav, is, so up, up to Patrick Vav is the instructions that Yeshua believed, which we said according to some were only in a vision. But either way, up to Patrick Vav, not including Patrick Vav, is the instructions that Yeshua received regarding the, the destruction of the walls of Yerito from Patrick Vav, which we'll discuss the next time, hopefully, from Patrick Vav, is going to be the account of the actual, the actual events that occurred, how the city of Yerito was taken. Regarding the, these instructions Yeshua received, so they're kind of mysterious. Seven times, why seven? Why were they surrounding the city? What was the point of all this? Why were they blowing shofaros? So the Radak, the Radak acknowledges the, the mystery of all this. The Radak says that Radak says Englishal time, the people sabare. We can't ask why Kaiparhu does things this way. Why, why they surrounded the city, and so on. He then proceeds to give some reasons for why they did this. In general, Mepharshim say things like it was to, either it was to provoke terror in the, in the in, 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 in to, to scare them, and to uh, scare them, or it was to inspire the Jewish people, to impress upon them that Hashem was fighting for them. Radak says, first of all, it was lahavil ha'amashim etokhayer. It was to uh, terrorize the people, to give to build up the kind of the suspense uh, that uh, the people, had, the army is there, but not, not approaching, they're just marching around. They, they would have been you know, frightened and, and mystified of what was going on. This was all meant to, uh, to, for a build up of suspense and to scare the people in the city. 
And also, it was meant as a general demonstration of the Yad Hashem. When the Jews conquered Eretz Canaan, they weren't going to have this, this kind of nate in every single city. So the other cities they, they fought were ordinary, more or less ordinary wars. With Hashem's help, they were ordinary wars. This was the first one. Hashem wanted to make a grand spectacle, a grand nate, just like we saw with the Yardane. We saw Hashem repeatedly said, I'm doing this great nate to the splitting of the Yardane, so everyone in Canaan should know that um, I am with the Jewish people, I will be helping them, and I will be, I will be uh, annihilating any opposition to them, I'll be, I'll, I'll be eliminating any, any obstacles in their path. This was meant to demoralize the people of Canaan. So too, the, this name, Hashem, Hashem wanted to begin the Jewish conquest of Eretz Canaan with one grand miracle to, to scare all the people of Canaan and that the Jews should know, I think, I think some say that the Jews themselves should, should know, that they should impress upon themselves that Hashem, that Hashem is doing a great nation for them, they should appreciate his, his power and his health. The, the, the Ral Dag makes an interesting point. The Ral Dag says, what was the point of the shofar? So the Ral Dag says that the... The Ral Dag says, the so the Jews should awaken and uh, be aroused from their slumbers, the yit, meaning their, their spiritual or uh, intellectual slumbers. The yit and Elibam, they should contemplate, consider the fact, in the Elo and the flow, these great Nisim, Hatsumos, these, these incredible, mighty miracles, so they should fear Hashem. This language uh, that the Shofar was meant, that the Jews should be awakened and aroused and, uh, and inspired to pay attention to what was going on. This is echoing the very famous language of the Rambam. The Rambam brings the halachas of Kiyah Shofar of Rosh Hashanah in his Mishnah Torah, in his halachic work. And then he says that we don't, we don't necessarily know why Hashem told us to blow the Shofar. There are many reasons offered by the commentaries. Or Sadi Gon gave ten reasons, I think. There are many, we don't really know clearly what the reason for Shofar is. But the Rambam says, even though it's a Zeret HaKasav, even though it's something which we don't have a clear and explicit reason for, nevertheless, Remesh Yeshua there is an illusion, there is a symbolism of the Shofar which we can appreciate. And that is, Uru Yishenim Yitzhad sleepers, spiritual sleepers who, who go through life uh, by habit, without, without uh, you know, Socrates says, unexamined life is not worth living. We go through life without... I wrote without thinking about what we're doing, whether we're whether we're doing it right, whether we should be improving, we should awaken and awaken from our uh, absorption and our involvement in the in the in the in the, in the silliness and folly of uh, temporal matters. We should we, we should remember our uh, our Creator, remember what He wants from us, which is our spiritual growth and our our uh, doing mitzvahs and following Hashem and, and being better people. And that, that's the remnant of the chauffeur. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, that's the nature of the chauffeur, is to uh, shake you out of uh, complacency and habits and so on. And that's why we call chauffeur of to remember that we need to do chuva, we need to improve, we need to remember what we're here in the world to do. And that's what the Raldag is saying here as well. The chauffeur was meant to, to, uh, to unsettle people, to, to get them to think and to focus and to pay attention to what was about to happen, which was going to be a great nace where Hashem was going to do a great nace for them in the, in the top leg of the walls of Yericho. Ralbag then says something else uh, incredibly interesting. Uh, this, is, this is something which is a signature idea of Ralbag and also other Rishonim as well, but Ralbag is taking it here to an extreme. Ralbag says another reason why they blew the chauffeur is because a true Agudola, a loud, a loud chauffeur blowing, a loud sound, he says, actually has the power to shake structures, to, to move matter. We, we know today, certainly, I, I don't know what the theory of sound was in the evil period. We understand today, sound is vibrations of the air, movements of the atmosphere. 
some sounds can cause glass to shatter. Some sounds you can fail, like you check the ground. Rumbling, you can fail. Some sounds you can you can actually fail. The sound is just movement of the air, and a loud enough and a massive enough movement of the air can actually shake structure. So he says that the So Simcha suggesting maybe, maybe there's a famous conundrum uh, in Parshat Yisro. It says it says that the Jews they, they saw the sounds that were produced at Matan Torah. So it's just an odd turn of phrase. You don't see sounds, you hear sounds. Simcha suggesting if the sounds were actually manifested themselves in shaking or physical things moving, maybe that's what they saw. So the Rabbi says that the blowing of the shofar is actually something that has a, a limited effect, but an effect on physical structure. Uh, even though he says, of course, the, the shofar is not really loud enough to topple these massive city walls, uh, of course it was an ace, he says, but nevertheless, when Hashem makes, makes miracles, he prefers to do it at least somewhat, to do it at least uh, to a certain extent using, using natural phenomena, even though, even though it still has to be an ace, but Hashem prefers to do it, to do it at least somewhat, so this idea is, 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 is said by many Rishonim in, in other contexts. Ramban, I think, says that that's why Noah constructed to build a table. He says the table was not actually big enough to hold, even though it was 300 cubits by 100 cubits and so on, it was not actually big enough to hold the entire biosphere. It's a big world. There's a lot of species out there. It was certainly with a nace, Ramban says. If it was a nace, why did Noah have to do anything? Why make such a big table? Why not just, why couldn't Hashem just wave his hand and say that nace, everything will survive? Hashem prefers to do nisim. Hashem prefers to do things in Derech HaTeva to the extent possible, and then he adds a nace to do what can't be done in Derech HaTeva. Well, I mean, the whole point is this overrules, right? So, you know, just hearing it, you know, wakes you up, but then if there's also a physical effect, it wakes you up more. That's also a good point, right? That if, we just, uh, if we're just passive, if we just witness uh, an event, we see it, but it's not the same thing. When we're actually involved, when we have some part in it, that may... That, that may uh, Focus us and, and bring and bring a deeper, a deeper uh, re- realization of what's going on. Right, that's an interesting idea as well. The Rambam, in particular, says it says this approach in a number of places. We've mentioned this in the past. One place, which is similar to what he says here, he says that at, at the at the story of Mara, after they crossed uh, the Yamsuf, it says they they had a, had a certain city where the water was not drinkable. It was bitter. It was foul. They couldn't drink it. So Hashem showed Moshe a stick, a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water was sweet. So it was a great nace. Hashem showed Moshe a nace, and then he made the water sweet. Because I'll say the stick was bitter. And it was a nace but took nace. It was a double nace. The stick should have made things worse, not better. That was all the great omnipotence, the great power of Hashem, that Hashem could do whatever he wants. Even a bitter stick can make the water sweet. Rabbi says, no, it was a sweet stick. And it had a limited effect on as a water purification tablet. Of course, one stick is not enough to purify a, a large enough quantity of water for the entire nation to drink. Of course, it was a nace. But Hashem always prefers to do the nace, at least initially, the Bederich HaTeva, to a certain extent, and the rest is a nace. What does Chazal mean when they said bitter stick? He said Chazal was just speaking figuratively. They just meant, you shouldn't understand this was a nace. This was not a chemical uh, water treatment. It was certainly a nace. But of course, Hashem's approach is to minimize the, minimize the nace as much as possible. Another example we mentioned is that in, in, in the story of Elisha, it says that his students were once building something, and an axe head flew off and fell into the water and sank, and they said that we borrowed it, we have to return it, what are we going to do? Elisha said, I'll solve the problem. He said, take a piece of wood and throw it into the water, and the wood came up with the axe, with the axe uh, metal, with the axe head. So Al-Bag says, it, it, it had a shot. The shot was that the wood would float, 
they threw the wood in and it somehow hooked onto it, it connected to the axe, and then the buoyancy of the wood lifted the whole thing. Of course it was innate. The is not just telling you that Alicia was a clever engineer. Of course, throwing an axe, throwing a piece of wood into the water and having it go underground and connect to the... Of course there was an elevator. Right, if it was really buoyant, it would, it would have floated. If it threw really hard, it could submerge it a little bit. The whole thing obviously was... Yeah, a little bit only. The whole thing obviously was innate. But the Rabag says, even Nisim are done with, with some element of Derech HaTeva. And that's what the Rabag is saying here. That sound, is at least a little bit of Derech HaTeva, sound has the power at least a little bit to, to, to move structures. And that was one reason Hashem did it. Even though, of course, uh, the true is not, sorry, not, not enough to topple a city wall, Hashem prefers to do Nisim at least a little bit for Derech HaTeva.